This episode is sponsored by Ahrefs, who I'm so proud to have as the very first sponsor of this podcast. I use their product literally 10 times a day for keyword research, backlink building, and tracking my content as it moves up the rankings. If you're interested, you can check them out for free. Just Google Ahrefs Webmaster Tools to find a suite of free tools for auditing your site, analyzing backlinks, and discovering new keywords. It's genuinely worth checking out. It's an absolutely dope SEO tool, and they support creators like me to keep doing shit like this for free. They're such an awesome company. Okay, enough. On to the episode. This week's guest is Kevin Indig, one of the most prominent and successful technology SEOs of today. In this episode, he reflects on his 10-year career spent in SEO and content director roles at companies like Atlassian, Shopify, G2, and Dailymotion. We hear five of his most important lessons from that time, illustrated by some fascinating insider stories and examples from those companies. As always, I'd like to give you a quick reminder to head over to our website and join the premium How The Fuck community to read the highlights of this episode and to get instant access to our growing library of organic strategy playbooks and case studies. Hi, Kevin. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I thought just to start us off, most people listening to this will probably already have heard of you and have been following you on, on social media of some kind, but could you kind of just walk us through a bit about your background and your career so far and like some of the things that, you're, that you've gone over? Some of you are like, I, I think it would be good to see like what you think has been your kind of most exciting career opportunities so far as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've been, I've been pretty blessed, you know? So just to, to paint the picture a little bit, I've been in this SEO space for over 10 years now. I did five years on the agency side in Germany. I was actually born and raised in Germany and I then went in-house when I came over to the States. I lived for six years in the San Francisco Bay area. And then for the last two years, I lived in Chicago. And as I mentioned, when I came over to US, I, I moved over to the in-house side of things, worked for companies like Atlassian, Dailymotion, G2, and currently as director of SEO at Shopify. So quite a kind of broad array of companies that I've worked at. And to be honest, I think all of these have been like, like one company has always been like a, a more exciting career opportunity than the next, even though every company has been fantastic and, and been a great opportunity to work at. But I've been blessed with, I would say, a nice trajectory of experience in companies that I was allowed to work at. Yeah, some really famous names in the tech world there. Some really cool companies to work at, I guess. Shopify definitely at the moment is like the hot one, <laughs> which seems yes, good place to work. It's also cool that you did five years in an eight, like in agencies before, I guess that's such a good foundation to learn. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. It's been, it's been critical. I would say I learned a lot on the job and the, the beauty about agency side is that you're exposed to lots of different problems, you know, and on the in-house side, you usually have a narrow scope of problems that go a bit deeper, but on the agency side, you get this, this breadth of different challenges to solve. And I think that's, that's a great career start. What do you prefer in-house? <laughs> I mean, I guess it's it's a difficult question, but I guess since I since I work in the house, I guess I slightly prefer in house. But you know, both of these roles have their pros and cons, and it's really difficult to say that one is so much better than the other. There are also a lot of people who prefer working with clients and on the agency side. So personal preference is is a factor that comes in here as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely, I've never worked in an agency, but I've, I feel like it would be hard for me to like fully get into all of the data. I feel like I monitor it constantly at the moment. And maybe I wouldn't be so integrated if I was in an agency. 
but I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah, it can totally, absolutely. I mean, usually it depends a little bit on what type of agency you work at and how many accounts you're responsible for. There are agencies where a single person manages 10 accounts and that's probably pretty stressful and hard to go deep on, but in other agencies that really dedicate the time to, to clients when you have maybe three to five, it definitely is a bit more focused, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you. You're still not the person implement or the, on the team that implements these things and not as hands-on. So you really play a stronger recommendation role there. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So like, let's move on to the kind of main topic of, of this conversation, which I'm most excited that I've got you to do this particular topic. Like yeah, having worked at so many great companies and had like some great experiences. And that topic is the big lessons from your career, I suppose, and your advice to either someone coming up in this industry or like advice you wish you had along the way and based on some big lessons from your career. So yeah, how would you go for that? Yeah, how would I go for that? So I brought a couple of of points. I, I thought a little bit about this and really looked at it from the perspective of if I had been eight years earlier in my career, what kind of advice would I would I want to get from somebody who's a bit further ahead? And the first thing that I came up with is alignment. And it sounds very basic, but it's actually very profound. And so alignment can happen on, on several different levels. But in essence, you want to make sure that everybody's on the same page. It's, you know, it's, it sounds like the most basic thing, but it's often not the case. And so... The first level of alignment you want to have is, of course, with your boss or manager. You just want to constantly know, what do you expect from me? How are how am I doing? Or how are we doing? What are the problems you want me to solve? What's top of your mind? You just really you want to be in sync. You know, it's almost like you see these swarms of birds flying through the air sometimes, how they're perfectly in sync wherever they go. It's almost the, the kind of analogy you want to use for this situation. So you want to understand how things are right now. And if you and your manager are on the same page. And the same thing when you manage a team or when you manage people, of course, goes into that direction. So you want to make sure that your team is in sync with you. And you know, part of that is one-on-ones, part of that is team meetings, uh, surveys to just understand how they perceive things. But you really want to have a pulse and, a, and an ear on the ground to understand if your team is in sync with you. And then lastly, there's a horizontal playing to that where you want to be in sync with your peers so that basically everybody is in sync and aligned all the time. And that is something that you need to dedicate time to. And uh, I haven't always done that. And I'm still practicing that, you know, but the the more experience that I get in this, in this industry and in this role, the more I learned that just to sheer alignment and go in the same direction, being on the same page about problems and opportunities is absolutely, absolutely crucial for you to be successful. Nice. That's a great point. And what's your advice on like being in sync even more than I suppose? Like what's the kind of critical factor for staying in sync? I mean, you mentioned a few there, I guess, around team meetings and, and things, but. Yeah, it, it really comes down to communication. And the thing you want to do that's, that's often outside of your comfort zone is over communicate. So, you know, humans often, and this also sets apart from, from machines, for example, but humans are really good at implied meaning. We understand when there's a message between the lines or something that, you know, is not explicitly mentioned, but implicitly, right? Like um, there's a fallacy where as a person, we always over index on how clear we think that implied message is, right? So in, in essence, we think we communicate clearer than we actually do. And the key to aligning is to just treat it almost like a, like a child where you just want to name everything explicitly 
and you want to constantly have a stream of, of communication and information in all of these three directions that I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I forget, I can think of loads of examples where this is, I've seen this be super relevant already for sure. I think something I've found in the startups I've worked at being so small that I'm always like in the past, I've been directly reporting to like the founder who might not get SEO or might not get marketing in general. And then I find that if I want a point to get across, I've noticed that I have to say that kind of thing at three different meetings, like the same thing, repeat us. And then they get, then they start to get what you're trying to say. I think that's a communication thing. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's a good call out though. Part of that is not just clear communication, but also beating the drum. And that's exactly what you're talking about, right? It's just like for something to stick, you need to say it many times and reiterate on it. And the best signal for you to understand if you do that is when people get annoyed, right? When they're like, oh my gosh, here's Kevin again with his you know, story about this or that, or with his point that he makes all the time. That's, that's when you know, okay, people get it. I've beaten the drum enough. Yeah, for sure. It's another thing I think people I've seen kind of talk about in, in SEO in particular, like trying to get maybe buy-in across the organization for SEO and how powerful it can be if you are synced and have the buy-in from other areas of the organization. Um, oh my God, it is huge. I mean, you know, buy-in is, without, with, with good buy-in, you almost don't have to justify as much because people are already bought in. So you don't need to convince them with more data, which is a big, big problem in SEO. And at the same time, if you don't have strategic buy-in, qualitative buy-in, then you can bring the best data in the world and, and people will still kind of not be on board, right? We have this, this kind of uh, false perception that you just need to bring the right data and then everybody will just see the truth and everybody will chime in and sing and, and we'll all dance and everything's going to be great. But that's often not the reality. You know, the reality is that humans, even with great data still make a lot of decisions based on gut and based on feeling. And it can be good and can be bad. So just want to plus one your point on buy-in. Yeah, definitely. I've actually been in a situation before as well. And I think this shows maybe you're not quite in sync, but say if you presented like traffic growth to a team or like a more senior team and they go, like the first thing they say is, well, like, what does that mean? Like that's very, all very well. But where's the growth or how does this get us new business? Or like that can be a sync and communication problem. Exactly. Exactly. There's part of that is also education, right? Uh, and, and just explaining to people, helping them see what you see instead of trying to just convince them with more arguments, right? That is a is, a, is an important differentiation. Yeah, true. Cool. Perfect. That's that's a great point one. What other kind of advice would you give? The second piece of advice I would give to my younger selves is to just question things more and think critically. I am very inclined towards speed and fast execution. That can come in very handy, but the lesson that I needed to learn is to really think things through and question them hard. So that could be, you know, it's less stuff like, oh, is this really the right tactic? It's much more on a strategic side. Like, are we measuring the right numbers? How could those numbers be misleading? Are we setting the right priorities? Or are we maybe, you know, do we have any... Do we, do we not have a clear framework for prioritization? So all these kind of meta questions, are we doing the right things? Are we fast enough? Is something going wrong? Is someone misaligned? Like all these meta questions and thinking about those more critically, that's mm-hmm. been a huge kind of lesson for me, especially as, a, as somebody who manages managers or as a, as a person who manages teams. Just looking at the team from a meta perspective with a bit more of an objective focus is super important because it helps you 
make this whole machine that you're building run smoother. Mm, that's a really great point. Have you got some like examples where in, in your career where that's and it worked out or gone wrong? Yeah, of course, absolutely. So at G2, for example, again, great, great company. Initially, we're very organic traffic focused, very kind of broad, high-level metric, which it makes sense also because it correlates very much with how G2 makes money. So to a very large degree, the way that G2 makes money is just with more traffic. And that's a rare exception. You know, most companies should should very critically question if more traffic is the answer or better traffic or if they should even measure traffic. But at G2 was a, was a real thing. And so, but at one point we we looked a bit deeper into, okay, what are the drivers of traffic? Like where where is the traffic mostly needed? And then we developed a metric that's a bit more tied to some of the categories that we went after. And so we we still kept organic traffic as a metric but through critical thinking and asking ourselves, hey, is this really like the, the right thing to understand if we're successful or not? We we came up with a couple of other metrics and we measured all of them together to understand if we're if we're successful here. And that was like just one of these moments where you step back and like, ah, are we doing the right thing? Like, is this is this really what we should be doing? Or have we maybe can, can we be honest with ourselves and admit that we have gotten smarter in the last six or twelve months? And we now understand that this is probably not the best metric. And it goes hand in hand with another human bias, which is is to just like, it's just consistency or stability, right? So even when you kind of deep down know, oh man, we should look at something else or we should do something else, there is this resistance to change that every human has in them, some less, some more, that you need to overcome to, to kind of be true to yourself and admit, you know what, we're a bit smarter. We should abandon that concept and, and adopt something that's, new a bit outside of our comfort zone, but actually the right thing to do. Mm, very interesting. It's like the sunk cost kind of thing. You don't want to change what you've already invested in. Exactly. Yeah, nice. I feel like every strategy should probably have like a reevaluation period built into it. Just a check back. Because it's so true. You can write a strategy, but you don't know what's going to change in a few months or a year or something. Yeah, I like that a lot. There's also something that there's this other company that I that I advise a little bit, like very, very small capacity. But it was the same thing there where we're like, okay, listen, this is a new, like young startup. We're going to make a lot of gut-based decisions. But as you mentioned, and I love this, this word, check back period, we're going to come back in three months and evaluate how our gut feeling choices were, right? Like how did that actually go? And that will help us not just, of course, you know, see how things went, but train our gut and make better gut decisions in the future. So yeah, one, one, one plus one and underline this one. That's huge. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. Okay, I, so what's point number three? I feel like I could keep going on all of those. Um, <laughs> yeah. I like that. Let's go to number three. Yeah, to, totally. Those, these are all like profound ones. Uh, <laughs> okay. Number three is, is actually a very practical one and is to sit down with the people. So I'm a I'm a very conceptual thinker. I'm really good on the strategy side of things, but I need to remind myself to actually work things out with the people in the room, right? So instead of just being like, hey, here's this concept or here's this framework or here's this goal, go out and get it. I, you know, now operate much more under a just let's just book an hour and just let's do this together to to some degree. And then, you know, you can. From me, from there on, you can you can take charge and, and spearhead this. But let's just work on this together for a while, so we can, of course, be faster, make some decisions quicker, and also both just explore this a little bit. You know, a lot of tasks that you that you delegate as a manager, 
there's a component of or a time period of exploration in them. We just like need to, you know, see how do you actually approach this and what's actually there. And doing that together with people in the room is actually very powerful and also has this little bonding part to it. So yeah, sit down with the people. Yeah, nice. And I suppose if everyone else has kind of felt like they've contributed, then the buy-in for that strategy is also like it makes logical sense to everybody else. Exactly, exactly. People feel like they contribute and they also feel like you contribute as a manager and you're not just leaving them alone. So yeah, it was a hard, hard lesson for me to learn. Mm. How would you recommend, say if you're like a young, like you said, this is maybe you eight years ago, how do you recommend kind of getting people into that room and balancing, I guess, you showing your expertise, but also like leading the session, but also like getting ideas from people? Yeah, it's a great question. I think a lot of this is actually just reaching out to the people you collaborate with and just asking them, hey, can we sit together for 30 minutes or maybe 60 minutes and just just work this through? And maybe can you answer a couple of questions? Can you share your viewpoints with me? Can, can you be my sounding board or give me feedback? Because people actually want to do that, right? And, and you know, you, you don't have to sell it as in like, oh, let's work on this together. It can also just be like, I want to, I want to hear your thoughts and everybody likes to share their thoughts, you know? So, uh, yeah, just, just ask people, ping them directly. And in a lot of cases, you know, a few times people actually turn it down. In most cases, people will be happy to help or provide a different way to give you input. And there's a lot for you to be, to, to learn from that, especially when you work with designers, writers, engineers, data scientists, all these people who are, who you are usually highly reliant on, but who can teach you a lot in the process and that will benefit you all your life. Yeah, for sure. Have you got more like examples of this exact thing, kind of like a project that you've got other people in the room and it's worked out better? Yes, absolutely. So at Dailymotion, I'm not, I'm not sure if people are familiar with Dailymotion that much. It's a competitor to YouTube. They now they slightly changed the business model, but it's actually a video platform for users to upload their content. And so uh, I joined Dailymotion as a director of SEO and I worked out of our Palo Alto office, but the company is actually French and headquartered in Paris. So I would regularly travel to Paris just to you know keep, keep in touch with, with everybody and build these relationships. And initially I had just basically worked out a roadmap in, in a silo and just send it over to, to the developers and be like, hey, like let's, you know, let, let's let's do this, right? And then create a lot of motivation. But I didn't do the, I didn't spend the time to sit together with them in a room and actually explain to them how I got there. You know, like what was the way to get there so that they can understand what I want, but also get the buy-in that we talked about earlier. And and at the same time, there would have been a lot of lessons for me to learn more about the tech stack and the technical limitations, which would have immediately made my roadmap so much better, right? But then if you, if you follow that silo approach, you basically, you send that over to the team. The team is not super happy because now they, they basically just execute on something that, that you told them to. They don't have enough context. And you, you then go on and, and kind of set expectations with your boss without having checked in with your team. Is that even feasible, right? So there's like all these kind of second, third order effect mistakes that you make from not sitting down with the people. Whereas today that should like, you know, that's, that's the, the first step that I do is, is just like a super scrappy draft of the roadmap or of the strategy or of the plan and then sitting together with the people, uh, with people and actually working that out. Yeah. That's really interesting. Especially if you are reliant on a team of like a tech team and designers. And like you said, this is even more important for sure. They're kind of very important career points in general, aren't they as well? It's useful to anyone 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, man, learn the hard way. I'm going to be honest. You know, that, that, that's how you learn by falling on your face. And hopefully you have someone in your corner or a manager who then picks you up and lets you learn from these mistakes and helps you draw the right learnings out of them. But yeah, yeah. you know, that's that's the stuff that's not so often talked about. And I'm I'm just at a point where I'm, I'm just I'm just tired of this and just I'm just happy to share, you know. I totally agree. Did you find that a lot of these were learned the hard way or did you ever have like a great manager at some point that gave you like some proper guidelines? I was lucky to, I think, I think every manager I worked with was great. I had like this intense luck of working with fantastic people and they, they usually all left me some room to, to fail within reason, right? Of course, you know, as a manager, you want to like completely let people fail. You want to want to set some guardrails there, but yeah, I was, I was very blessed and that allowed me to, again, like learn more from experience and failure than from hearsay or from people giving me advice on some of these things. Mm, I was going to ask you this at some point anyway, but maybe now is a good time because I feel like maybe you've made like some good decisions, but it sounds like, like who to work for in terms of manager and like companies to work for. Have you got any advice there before we go on to point the next point about kind of choosing where to work? Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of companies, of course, a bit hard to say, but in terms of the type of company and type of manager, you really want to go and join or work for companies who where you can over-index and learn, especially early on in your career. But there comes this moment when it, when things flip around where actually you're kind of bringing something to the company and you're spearheading more and, and you're kind of, I don't want to say more in charge, but you like, you, you drive more. But then before then, you know, it's really for you to learn and to soak things up. And so I think you just early on in your career want to really look for these learning opportunities and, and value money and maybe other things a bit less, but really where can you learn the fastest? Because that's ultimately what will get you to the money faster as well, right? Like there's there's just some steps that you cannot skip. No matter how hard you try, you, you'll learn these lessons one way or the other. So might as well look for a company that allows you to do that and fail within a reasonable scope. Definitely. It's a nuance that I haven't really heard before, but it's, I mean, I've heard the kind of beginning of your career, you should value money less and value experience more, but I like that also at some point that flips and it's like, where can you bring your knowledge and get valued more as well? Towards- oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, at some point that's at a certain level that's expected, right? Like as a director, you're not... I mean, you you always learn, right? Like it doesn't matter if you're a CEO of a large company or not, but at, at a certain point, you are expected to 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 bring a certain stability to a company and a certain kind of performance direction. So you cannot you cannot kind of you know bet the farm anymore. Be like, oh, you know, we're gonna bet we're gonna like bet everything on this one big initiative, and if if it fails, then I, I just learned from it. You know, it's not the way you can you can you can argue uh, about it. You're expected to fail early and in small uh, scope or within small reason. Uh, and not kind of in these huge initiatives where like, man, we built, we did all this stuff, but it actually completely failed. That's at a certain level, like that's then the reason to to like send you home and, and maybe without a salary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could totally see that. And um, I suppose as your value as a as like someone who as an expert goes up, then you start to pick companies that like you believe in for some other reason, or you believe in their growth rate, or you know you can fit in as well. Hundred percent, a hundred percent. You become a lot more strategic in the companies you choose to work for, and mission plays a much much greater importance, and other factors as well, like maybe what the impact of the company is, and as a whole, you know, like Shopify is a great example, super mission driven company, 
huge impact in general. That was certainly one of the reasons for why I went there. And then money becomes more of a requirement, but it's less this kind of whole, oh, I'm just seeing where I can make more. And it's more of a, okay, where can I have impact in a company that already has a big impact? Mm, yeah, definitely. I can really see that. Cool. Hello, lovely Lister. I just wanted to interrupt this episode, very annoying, I know, to plug something I actually think could be a lot of value to you. And that's the premium membership of How The Fuck. It's $8 per month. And what do you get? Well, apart from a lot of radiant love from me, well, every, every listener is getting that anyway. You can expect the highlights of every episode of the podcast. I'll also explain extra bits, point out things like common pitfalls of following the strategies you hear on the podcast. Um, I also share templates, like recently I shared a 100-point checklist for updating your older content and frameworks for things like how to create conversion-focused blog posts. You can check out the content that's already there at the How The Fuck website under the premium filter. And uh, yeah, just do it, you know, see what you think. I hope you're enjoying this episode, by the way. It's freaking great, isn't it? Anyway, back to the guest. Okay, what about advice number four? Advice number four uh, to me is, is to document everything. And so documentation is one of these things that can slow you down if you exaggerate them. But it's also these things that can act as a fail-safe, or maybe fail-safe is a bit much, but can act as a, a multiplier of your impact, right? And so like a great example of a, I can actually, I'll just, I think I can, I can mention this at, at Shopify, is that we were working on some, on an infrastructure project that really impacted a lot of our organic traffic. Like it was, it was a big thing. And we're blessed to work with a team that understood the importance of documentation. And now we can almost self-serve this, this kind of infrastructure functionality. I can unfortunately, I can't name exactly what it is. It would give a bit too much away for a public company, but let's just say it's it's like this infrastructure thing, this functionality that we need to drive more organic traffic. And luckily we worked with a team that documented it to a degree that we can self-serve and are not dependent on them anymore in the future. And I think that's that's really kind of the, the power of documentation. It's really automating a workflow. And the same is true for onboarding new people, right? With really good onboarding documentation, those people now have a roadmap and you can you can shave up so much time helping people to onboard. It's almost that they can self-serve onboarding. So good documentation, being clear in, the do, in, in, in what you create and understanding the balance between slowing down to document and when documentation is critical has been a, a huge kind of lesson across my career. Nice. Yeah, I like that. I guess it's, it's sort of like de-risking anyone if, if anyone leaves as well. And yes. not being totally dependent on their knowledge right now. Um, and you would be shocked how often that happens. <laughs> I mean, people leaving and then companies, big companies losing critical information happens all the time. And this is something that can be prevented by just spending a bit more time and putting in a bit more work to properly document things. Yeah, definitely. Do you have, like, how big is your team right now at Shopify? Uh, it's a bit over, it's almost 25 people. 25 people. So that's like writers and like SEO strategists and things. They're all, they're all SEOs. Uh, we have a separate team for writers. Oh, okay. Okay. So not specifically at Shopify, but what other kind of processes do you write down the kind of the guide to? So it's a good question. You know, there, there are things that are absolutely mission critical, like what's our roadmap, right? Like what is our, what are our strategic priorities that of course is a minimum viable thing that you need. 
And then another one would just be briefs for projects, right? Like what for, for these projects, what actually should be done? What's What does success look like? What is the outcome? What do we need for that? All these kind of questions. It's almost like a product review requirements document, like a PRD, right? Uh, where you store everything. But then there are also company-wide things. Maybe, you know, like this is this applies more to Shopify in general, but like what's our, what is our, I don't know, compensation philosophy? What is our... What are uh, kind of what's the vision for the company? All these kind of things also need to be documented. And at Shopify, we have our, our own solution for that. And at a previous company at G2, I actually brought a product from Atlassian where I worked previously, which is called Confluence. And it's something like a like a company internal wiki where everybody can contribute and create pages. And that's actually that's a documentation culture that I am a huge fan of because it has so many great second order, third order, order effects. It's so true how important this is, actually. I think we use Confluence now as well. And so like the sales team coming every week asking, do we have this piece of content or do we have like this? Or like, what what are we saying here? And we just find that we say the same thing over and over again. But like, as soon as we can put it in Confluence and get it really clear, then it can be more self-serve. Exactly, exactly. It can be self-serve. People can comment on it, debate it, discuss it. And huge benefit of, of documentation and of any writing is really that you're forced to clarify your thoughts, right? So instead of, again, like going back to this implicit meaning problem or bias, you're just forced to clarify things and make them very explicit. Yeah, that's something I've completely experienced before. I like what you said about having kind of the mission and vision type thing written down as well. That's like a key area to clarify. And that's, I think, in a small startup that I've worked at in the past, it's been it's like something that we pass down to every new employee. But if you sometimes when you discuss it as as a team, you realize you're on slightly different pages. And if you haven't documented it, you haven't got it in like that clear mission vision written down, it can just be slowly like just dissoluted or whatever the word is, but slowly kind of muddy what that really is. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. These things, as you said, like, you know, it's it comes back to alignment as well. And alignment decays if things are not clear. And at the same time, you might actually uncover that the problem is not clearly defined when, when there's unclarity around something, you, you write it down. But yeah, the, the first step is always writing it down. And that's why documentation is so powerful to me. Yeah, totally agree. Okay, so what's the, what's the fifth and I think final point? Fifth and final point to me is to evangelize. And I know this is, this is a, bit, a bit broad. So generally, evangelization is a little bit like you know, like being loud about certain topics. And what I really mean by that is, especially for a discipline like SEO, you want to you wanna kind of advocate SEO throughout a company. And this could be, could happen through presentations or education where we just explain people what SEO is. It could be how people can contribute to SEO, like how can designers, writers, engineers, and so on help with SEO and just get people fascinated and, and excited about the topic a little bit. And it's so powerful because we spoke about the fact or the, the point about buy-in earlier. And if the company is kind of interested in something you do, all sorts of doors are starting to open. And you can also really demonstrate your expertise by constantly informing the company about what's what's going on at the moment. So evangelization, huge fan of this. Did this successfully at Atlassian where I went on a whole campaign where I educated different teams, as I mentioned before, like engineers, designers, writers, and so on. And that had a profound impact on the organic search performance of the company because all of a sudden everybody contributes 
and people start getting positive feedback signals from what they do. You know, they start seeing how they can help with performance, which then has this kind of this little flywheel effect where people are just, you know, a, a bit more excited about this. Yeah, definitely. I can see that. I think, like you said, it kind of feeds into the getting budget and buy-in and and things. But I really like that point of that. When you when you've evangelized successfully, people start coming to you with their ideas to some extent and helping you with performance. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So and it's also it's always good, you know, when a lot of people understand what you do in a company, it's like maybe another hard lesson that I learned. But when you're the only one, it's nice because you're harder to replace. But on the other hand, it's also much more difficult to get buy-in from, from other people and support. So you want to be loud about this. You want to be a source of, of information when it comes to the topic you evangelize and just have this kind of top of mind. Because it's, it's almost like, you know, the, the analogy to me is always that you need to also, you need to not, not just market externally or to the outside, but also in the inside, right? You need to advocate internally and maybe, you know, maybe do a little bit of content marketing internally or whatever you want to call it, but just evangelize. Definitely. hundred percent agree that like internal marketing is like almost half the job, really getting people to believe them. I think this is a problem marketers in general have actually, like a lot of companies don't by default believe in marketing and yes. showing them the results that you can have or or how quickly you could have them or actually showing. I think even just shouting about the results you are having right now, it's easy to forget to do. And then and then you fall into just something that's like just a social media a tweet every week or something. <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. You know, sometimes it's enough to even just say, hey, this is where we are today, by the way. Or by the way, we're completely losing out against our competitors. You know, those kind of insights uh, are super valuable. And I, I promise you, you know, like your SEO wants to hear about that if you package it the right way. So yeah, completely underrated usually and, and something that, can, that, I, that I wish I had learned earlier in my career. Definitely. What do you think, if someone wants to advocate for SEO, what do you think are some key points? Like beyond, I guess sometimes it can be hard to directly say like, this is the revenue impact. We can maybe easier in some areas, like I don't know if e-commerce strikes me as somewhere that might be easier to track it back to a sale. But yeah, some other areas like SEO really has an impact and people should be investing in it. Absolutely. So you already touched on the revenue situation and I do agree with you that can be easier in some companies, harder than others. I would still try to find some sort of an impact metric from SEO, whether it's just leads or button clicks or something that helps people understand what actually happens. But then there can also be things like, hey, this is what our competitors are doing or our competitors are so far ahead of us. It can also be something like, hey, we recently, you know, like this is our organic search performance or here are some rankings for very important keywords. You would be shocked how many CEOs Google some keywords that they think are important and then ask the SEO, hey, why are we not ranking number one here? You know, it's like this super scrappy kind of way to quantify SEO, but that's how they do it, right? They will look at, hey, how are we doing for project management? Type it in Google. And they don't know that the, the results are personalized and all the other stuff related to SEO, but these are all things that they do and look at that are tangible for them. So when you think about evangelization, you kind of want to think about how are people making this real for themselves and how can you tell a story about that. Mm -hmm. I 100% agree. I've personally, even I think in the last couple of months, experienced one, being able to to sell the idea based on what your competitors are doing and showing what they're doing and that we're really not doing. And two, I've had the CEO say to me, like type in something in Google and say, why aren't we number one for this? <laughs> and then, I'm, you know, in my head, I'm like, well, the search volume 
is there's none <laughs> just for, for that specific keyword. So I didn't bother doing it yet. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But the, to the CEO, it's like, well, I would look for that. So why is nobody else looking for that? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, it's uh, it's it's a it's a fun game, and you can you can educate uh, CEOs. They're very open and smart people usually. So you know, yeah. if they keep doing that a year in after you started the company, then that's on you now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 100%. If it's zero search volume, it's quite easy to rank for it. So some, yeah. sometimes you just show and sometimes you teach them that it's not worth it right now. Exactly, exactly. Help them understand it, right? We, we spoke about that earlier. Just instead of convincing people, just help them understand better what they're looking at. Definitely. Cool. Okay, that's five pieces of really great career advice. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It was a fun, fun conversation. Yeah, it was really great. I think I've captured you at a great time to be able to teach everyone listening. So thank you so much. Thank you too, Ben. Appreciate it. That's the end of the episode. So thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate the time you invested in this episode. Um, a few next steps. Of course, we have the premium community where you can read this strategy. Basically, you can download it and keep it forever so you don't have to listen to this episode again or make notes. Um, also come follow me on LinkedIn. I'm posting like lots of little extra bits and things around the podcast and, and things I've learned in SEO. So come follow me. And if you don't already, obviously subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the newsletter. Thank you.